I really want to go to a wedding in a barn. I've never, I don't think I've ever been to a wedding I've, in a barn either. So many people have. I mean, I feel like anytime I write about this, people talk about like their own wedding barn experience. But I like I've I been to other been. events yeah. in barns, like reception. Like, I've never been in a barn. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Corner Table, a show all about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Cap Times. I'm Eric Lawrenson, the producer for Cap Times Podcasts, and I get to do the intro for today's episode. Today, you're going to hear The Corner Table's host, Lindsay Christians, talk to the Cap Times investigative reporter, Caitlin Farrell, about her recent cover story for the paper, all about the politics of the state's Tavern Association and about the state's liquor laws and regulatory practices. As Caitlin will tell you, those laws are very convoluted and also a source of major contention among taverns, brewers, distributors, and others. I'll let Lindsay take it away. I think you're really going to enjoy this talk. So you decided to write about the Wisconsin Tavern League. For those who don't know, what is it? What does it do? Sure. So the Wisconsin Tavern League uh, is an orga- it's a nonprofit organization headquartered technically in Fitchburg, just over the border. Uh, but they have chapters around the state, and it is, as the name suggests, a league of taverns. So uh, taverns are bars, supper clubs. They are retail establishments that sell alcohol to the general public. And so these types of organizations do exist in other states as well. Wisconsin, however, has the the most uniform and largest one in the state. And so the Tavern League's been around for a long time. Um, but it's been um, it's been a player in the state capital for a while. And initially, my my question was to sort of look at the degree to which their influence has changed as politics and how people lobby on a variety of issues has changed. How might that have affected the league? And then that question sort of morphed into looking at this other type of regulatory issue and confusion that became the story. You talk a little in the story about the three-tier system. Um, And can you explain a little bit about what that is as well? Sure. So the three-tier system is a regulatory framework that it's state law that exists in Wisconsin. Those statutes are housed in Chapter 125. Nice. Good memory. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, yeah, the three-tier system is is a is a system of um, regulation that does exist in other states as well, and that's really the centerpiece about what people are various industry players are fighting about here. So that type of regulatory framework outlines three different parts, three different tiers. You have people who brew, manufacture, distill, produce spirits. Then you have beer distributors and then you have like liquor wine distributors as well. And then the state is actually broken down into regions where each distributor like can work, I guess. So it's it's the 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 nature of this law actually carves out the need for distributors in this way that have to regulate and or that have to operate in some certain way. And then you have retailers. The first step is that the beer is made, then the beer is distributed to a bar or a supper club or a restaurant, and then that beer is sold by a bartender, um, a server, whomever, to the general public. 
So if I am a bar owner and I am on my vacation to California and I find this amazing wine at this winery that I just love and they're so good, but they're really small and maybe like I haven't found them in Wisconsin before, I can't just buy a couple cases of that wine at the winery, have it shipped to my house or my business and then serve it. I can't do that, right? No, you cannot. You cannot ship it to an establishment, a licensed bar, and sell it to and the public. sell it, yes. You have to buy – and this is something that um, – Folks who are critical of the three-tier system as it as some folks want it enforced right now are critical of because you can't just – like even if um, there is a bar that exists next to um, – like he uses this example all the time, like Twisted Path Distillery in Milwaukee. Brian Sammons owns that company. Uh, and let's say that there's just a bar, a separate bar right next to it. And they sell his spirits, right? Let's say one night on Saturday, they run out of his spirits. They can't just go next door and buy a bottle of it and then sell it because that, that it's illegal and breaking the three-tier system. He, this, the, by law, by that system, a retailer must purchase the liquor from a distributor. And proponents of that would say that, that this is a substance that needs to be controlled and regulated and that because it can do damage and and affect people, that we know that it's – authentic and real and that you are guaranteed like this authenticity when you get it from a wholesaler. So the distributor is the one that's making sure it's a real thing. Correct. How do they make sure it are they testing it? Well, they I I guess so that well the question of testing is something that people think the state should be doing to make sure that there's just not bootleg moonshine and that that bars are not just going to Costco, yeah. right, and buying up stuff like that. And so I don't know, actually. I'm not aware that liquor wholesalers necessarily, like, have labs that test it. Uh, if they do, I apologize. But um, they they work as sort of just – a verifiable company that is actually working with the brewers and have contracts in place. And so then there's contracts involved, right, in how uh, a distributor is basically representing a brewer. And proponents of this system would say then that – or in distributors and distributor lobbyists would say that the distributor does a lot of work on behalf of a brewer helping to promote and place their product on grocery store shelves or on tap lines at various bars, right? And even um, Deb Carey, who founded New Glarus, has said in the past too that she she credits in part the growth that she has seen there um, with the distributor being able to put her brand out there. People will say that it's giving it a platform. It's giving it that opportunity in some sense. Whereas in the past, like the really big domestic brewers like Budweiser and Miller could could over could consume everything and overtake tap lines everywhere just because they they're so big. It seems like the kind of thing you should be able to choose though. Like if you want to pay a distributor to help, you know, expand your brand throughout the state or whatever, that should be I mean, shouldn't it? Like something that you could choose. Because if you're really small, I mean, I know that there's different rules for self-distribution, right, uh, to some degree? Right. And I'm less – I ought to, admittedly am less familiar with um, what the specific circumstances are where you can self-distribute. You have to and be really little. Right. And that's another thing that – there's. that's another criti- criticism that folks have brought up is that, you know, not every – 
not every brewery or small distillery wants to become as big as New Glarus and Spotted Cow. Like, right. no, I mean, some people just want to stay small. And I think that is a challenge that some lawmakers have proposed addressing in the law. Uh, I don't believe that that has gone anywhere. But it kind of all goes back to the, the central problem. Everyone mostly agrees that this, the laws are confusing. They're convoluted. They're hard to understand. And no one really – few people have any real sense of, of whether what they're doing is legal or not. And then at the end of the day, people wonder like, well, I don't know, maybe it doesn't even matter because the state's not enforcing it one way or the other anyway. In an early part of the story, you quote someone from the Tavern League being like, we're always under attack for something. It just depends on what it is. And I was like, "Okay, so, I mean, he sounds like he's maybe spoiling for a fight there. But I did think it was interesting. And I was like, under attack. I mean, then I thought about like the smoking ban. And then like later in the story, you reference like, you know, a lawsuit over drink specials that some college students brought. But like wedding barns? They're under attack from wedding barns. So explain why wedding barns are a problem. Sure. And I will say just um, addressing that comment specifically as well. He he was he he said that comment and also was speaking about it in like a policy regulatory way, but then also culturally too. I think where people want to say like drinking's bad for public health and oh, like yeah. brew drinking, like but then the idea that there's like the craft cocktail with like locally and regionally brewed ingredients and that the growth of that kind of thing that has a totally different type of aesthetic image reputation. And they had talked about the way in which people write about alcohol and liquor has this. It's has this. Two facedness. Oh about yes, it, right. I think the whole culture does, and so it's like th- they found that to be interesting. When it's like, hey, that's us. We're the one creating the like. We're the craft cocktail bars. I mean, you know, I guess I don't know if Merchant or, um, you know, Lucille or something Gibbs, some of the you know the fancy nice Madison cocktail places are members of the Tavern League, but they are retailers. Uh, in it's their a valid tier question. Well. They may be, and so um, anyway, so it's just that gets a different type of image, even though they're among that same tier than like. The, maybe the college bar where people get sloppy and whatever, you know. Um, and so as it pertains to wedding barns, though, they see that particularly as this new real existential threat. Uh, and that issue has gotten a lot more attention in part because of the way that Americans for Prosperity has inserted themselves into the debate and um, and made it really a free market issue. So, you know, they the Tavern League would say that in the past – They've gotten criticized for, you know, drunk driving issues, smoking in bars. Um, They've fought battles over hours and how late they should stay up. And now the latest thing is that they are being protectionist, anti-competitive, and are trying to drive little guys, small businesses out of the market. I have heard that, for sure. And so – and that – that not only is that their policy objective, but the way that they go about doing that is like strong-arming lawmakers and trying to, you know, have a lot of bluster and intimidate people. It's coming back to what I think is a really interesting, um, like, politically, philosophically political, political philosophy question (laughs) about what do we, what does free market look like and what is protectionism? And then how does that fit into the context really, though, of what the intent of the law is and what that's meant to be? I mean, one thing the Tavern League has said is, you know, if people who are making laws right now think that wedding barns should not have a license should not have to have an alcohol license and should be able to serve whatever kind of alcohol beer they want and buy it from Costco then they should change the law change the three-tier system if you don't think the three-tier system is equitable and that it's stifling competition and it is protectionist then then they should change that system but don't try to this is the tavern league's argument don't try to which is what has been done in the past 
either just not enforce the law or kind of make all these exceptions and tweaks and changes, you know, um, that is just kind of confusing for everyone, which is sort of what it looks like now, which has been done in a variety of budget years. There's just been changes and carve-outs to try to sort of make things more amenable to some of these new companies and players that have come on to the alcohol scene. So if I answered your question. Yeah. So for example, I want to have my wedding in a barn and it's going to be beautiful. And so does it matter for, first of all, if I have it at like White Oak Savannah or somewhere beautiful like that, that's like a, like a venue that is designated as a wedding barn versus if I want to go to my aunt and uncle's backyard up in Menominee and have my wedding out there and they just like do it up for the wedding just temporarily and I buy all my booze from Costco. Are, are those different? First of all, and like, is my wedding illegal in either sense? So I, I'm not an attorney, I guess, and I think that the question about whether it's legal or not would really still be in dispute. Uh, ostensibly, that question might not matter, even because the likelihood that the Department of Revenue would come in and shut you down is, from what I can tell and what I've read and what people are reporting, is very low at this point. So. They're, They're not, not going to, like, stomp into my wedding and shut it down? No. I think that that's <laughs> unlikely. Maybe okay. they will. And maybe changes are coming in that way. But I think that's one thing that what, – what we have seen and what has persisted is basically the scenario with your relative's barn way up north and you do whatever you want. And that, that's been allowed to persist and nothing's happened. And that's, that's a dynamic that folks – you know, from the Tavern League and some others, too, have said people are going to get hurt. And well, in wedding barns, we'll say the wedding barns that do not want to have an alcohol license say that we are regulated and have a variety of licenses from the municipalities in which we reside. So they might have an occupancy permit and they might be licensed from some other type of sanitary thing, whatever their local thing might provide. Things it's, like fire doors and like right. making sure that the kitchen is is commercial or whatever. Right. And so I don't really have a sense, I guess, with like how many municipalities are like which barns have which licenses and what which municipalities really require and then enforce which things. But when it comes to the state liquor license, both the municipality and the state have a dual role in that. And so one thing that many wedding bars who, barns who do not have liquor licenses say is that in some municipalities, it's very hard to get one. There's caps, I think, on how many municipalities will issue, issue more licenses. And so a wedding barn that's in a location where there's no more licenses available, and if the state says, you need that now, that's going to put them out of business. Right, yeah. And that's what they say they don't want and that other folks say is really unfair and shouldn't happen and is ridiculous. I'm thinking about it, you know, is as if it were my own wedding. And like the idea that I could go to Costco and buy my own booze at a cheaper price for my wedding is weddings are so expensive. They're yeah. so expensive. And so that's really appealing. And, and it feels like it feels like a nanny state a little bit. Like we're going to we're going to take care of you. Like, you know, we're going to make sure you don't you know, get injured. But at the same time, I could see someone being like, I have this room uh, in my Elks Lodge or whatever, or I have this thing and I have to pay X, Y, Z for my booze because I'm following these laws or whatever. And here my neighbor just opened his barn in his backyard and he's doing the same kind of thing and he's taking business away from me. I don't know. Like I could see how it would feel unfair. Right. Yeah. No, I I definitely can too. And that's why I think for me, I guess – that the issue continues to be just really interesting and yeah. layered. Because one thing, too, that I, I, I think me as someone who sort of a policy nerd, one um, tenant of this issue that's brought been brought up to me is that, 
you know, obviously in Wisconsin, a lot of people drink and the the way that this is regulated is very front and center. And it's something that people can understand and be in front of. But it's not wholly unusual or crazy that there is this sort of complex set of regulatory framework about alcohol. There's franchise laws that govern the things that we see or don't see as far as fast food restaurants, car dealerships, tobacco products are also pretty heavily regulated and controlled in a very precise way where the state, they have to be stamped and the state tracks that. And so this isn't a total outlier as far as this is the only thing the state has this like very involved nanny state, whatever, three-tier right layered a thing that they're doing. Um, and, you know, I, I just think that it's a good question. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe the three-tier system needs to be overhauled totally, or maybe it doesn't. The thing that is interesting and I think continuing continues to be frustrating for folks is that there's really no movement that I have seen in substantively changing or clarifying the law, whatever way they want to go about doing that, whether it's, you know, there's been attempts at times to further fortify the three tiers because then you can't do any cross so you have these three tiers and then you know you can't cr- do any cross tier type of activity so you can't you can't be a a beer brewer and then also just own a random cocktail bar right that is cuz that's going yeah. across it remains very separate but even those lines have blurred a bit because brewers are allowed to have tap rooms where they just sell their beer but then they're also like, well, what about our customers that don't want to drink beer and they want to drink wine or they want to have a cocktail? Can't we also sell cocktails? And then this is where they're like, we should be able to do that. That's just – why not? I'm a small business. This, this, this should be free market. And then other people are like, well, no, you can't do that because the rule for decades has been that, you know, this is a separate thing. I have been fascinated to see how in certain cases necessity is the mother of invention, right? So, for example, I love Stateline Distillery. It's over on the east mm-hmm. side of town. Yeah. And they will make – and Old Sugar Distillery too – makes their own liqueurs, mm-hmm. makes their own – I mean, they don't have to make their own bitters because bitters is like a – it's considered a food product, but whatever. Um, I don't understand why. But – they were making their own bitters. They were making their own liqueur because if they wanted to have something alcoholic that was used in their cocktails, they had to make it on site because mm. they're a distillery. Yeah. And it, it just made for some really interesting cocktails, right? And and especially if you have really creative, inventive people. Now, I don't know that they would agree with me that that's a good thing. I think that they would probably be like, look, I don't need to be making my own Campari. Can you yeah. please help me out? Yeah. Um, Right? Mm-hmm. So, because a state line gin with Negroni, like Negroni is amazing. Oh, nice. But things like that, I, I think about the creativity that comes out of that, and that's interesting to me. That said, like, I am very vocally pro artisan. Like, I think it's really cool to see these entrepreneurs coming up and making cool stuff and, and trying new things. And the distillery boom and the brewery boom, these are all like, there was a line in the story about oversaturation. And I was like, mm-hmm. the market decides that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily going to be the worst places that go under. It may be places that are undercapitalized that go under or who are like trying to navigate the system and, you know, feeling for a complex, like, bunch of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. But I do think it's, it's interesting to look at the three-tier system and see who it serves and who it doesn't. And for me, especially seeing that a lot of the distributors in recent years have been bought up by larger companies that are outside of the state that are like n- not necessarily making the book, uh, the book, the thing, the things that are on offer mm-hmm. uh, bigger or smaller, 
But I worry about that getting homogenized and mm-hmm. of like not being able to like work with a distributor to say, I really want these wines from Elevé in Oregon. Can you please right. get them? You know, like sometimes distributors will work with you if they're small or they they have that flexibility and sometimes they can't or they won't. Right. Yeah, no, it's a, I think it's a really interesting question and argument because you're right. Folks who are really frustrated by the way that the, the three-tier system is set up and what it provides for is is that, yeah, it, it fundamentally bars people from doing certain types of bu- – combining certain types of businesses with other types of businesses, right? It, it fundamentally does stop some type of new innovation potentially – when it comes I think to it does. how we're making and selling alcohol. And so, and yeah, folks, there's been testimony at various legislative committees that talk about how frustrating that is. And this is where the the very, um, you know, they would say like kind of a free market, limited government, ideological, conservative thread there would say we are fundamentally opposed to that. And the government shouldn't – it's not government's role to carve out a distributor industry, for example – and or say what one small business can or can't do when it it's not it it's really not hurting the public health or it's it could very much benefit it, and so um, but you know then on the flip side of that what you hear the distributors say is that they paint a very different picture of what might happen if three tier completely goes away and say that. We don't really have a good grasp of how bigger players will come in. What we say we love about local and artisan, the distributors, they would argue that they provide for diversity in the marketplace and that the reason we've seen craft succeed to the degree that it has is because we see that distributors and taverns as well, when they're, when they're, when they're buying from their tap lines, know that this is what the public wants. The distributor gives the craft – brewer or distiller a platform an entree an entree yeah. into that yeah for and sure. then the public is driving what what demand is and because distributors and retailers i mean they all make money it, when one makes money they're all going to be making money and that's one comment i don't know that that's in the story but that i've heard from the distributor side of things too that it's a shame that all like all three legs of this stool are fighting all the time and it's true they really do appear to have been fighting forever <laughs> about this because they really complement each other one view is that they really complement each other they elevate each other and when one makes money they all make money and so they would say that it is enhancing diversity right because the tavern people are going to buy from the distributor what people want which which i've heard from bar owners is still increasingly ta- craft year, especially in Madison. And, you know, there's an opportunity for small local places to to get out there. Whereas if this didn't exist, there wasn't a mechanism for that, then it would be much, much harder. Yeah. You know, but then again, free market people would say like, you know, there's like small little things that people like. And if you really like this beer, you can go to wherever the dude's brewing it, buy it from him. And then or, it can grow or, or get what it shipped to your house or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's other like people do commerce when, you know, demand drives that without a distributor. And so so I, I guess I personally find that there are valid arguments on both sides and that there's really some interesting, um, you know, policy regulatory context for why things are the way that they are. Do you think confusion over the laws has had a chilling effect on like new craft breweries or distilleries? I have heard that argument before. I mean, I guess it's 
kind of hard to say because they're still coming. And now the market, people are saying, is oversaturated. So clearly, it doesn't seem to have had that much of a chilling effect where we're seeing a huge drop off. But in some of these legislative, like this legislative study committee that looked at this issue, that was one thing that was brought up that, um, you know, not only is it having a chilling effect, but like depending on what the state decides to do with wedding barns, it can bankrupt families. And, you know, especially folks who represent folks who do not want barns to have to have an alcohol license. Um, They're part of an agricultural tourism group. They say that this has been a really crucial source of income for farmers who are really struggling with with milk prices right now. And that, you know, when they some I think still are working dairy farms or some have had to sell their herds or, you know, this has been a really like a lifesaver for some of those those family farms. And so it's just it would be really a shame for for them to have to to close up shop and especially when they're seeing things the demand for the wedding barn doesn't seem to be decreasing and you know I talked to folks now a little not I didn't talk to folks just this month but I have been talking to folks over the last several months and year say that they're they mean they are still booking out like year plus in advance um for their venue when when they're open yeah I think that the wedding barn trend is going to continue to rise yeah I think so too it's that so, rustic chic, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've actually never been. I now I I really want to go to a wedding in a barn. I've never. I don't think I've ever been to a wedding I've, in a barn either. So many people have. I mean, I feel like anytime I read about this, people talk about like their own wedding barn experience. But I, like, I've I been to other been events in yeah. barns, like receptions. Like, I've never been in a barn. <laughs> No, just kidding. <laughs> um, there is this there's this pizza farm that's up north in the Wausau area. Oh. So pizza farms are like, first of all, a thing apparently like specific to the Midwest, which I did not know. But until recently, I Wait, was like, oh. so they a pizza farm. So yeah, they grow so, all the ingredients that goes on the pizza on the yep. farm. Oh, that's so cool. I've never yeah. heard of that. So <gasps> Crest Springs has a pizza farm. And I feel like I'm going to get the name wrong, but I think it's Stony Acres. It's like up north outside Wausau. But he has a pizza farm. So he built like a pizza oven. And then I think he built a second pizza, pizza oven. And so people like come and they pick up their CSA and then they stay and they have pizza and there's like music and there's beer and it's a fun thing. But he's now also, I think he said last fall, he's going to be building a brewery. Ah, okay. You know? Yeah. So, but it's about, I think, this this changing look of entrepreneur movement in Wisconsin. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it totally. Well, it just made me think this isn't in Wisconsin, but just over the border uh, in Wabasha, Minnesota, I stayed last, went there last weekend and stayed at a bed and breakfast that had a brewery in the garage next door. And I should have asked her how they were, how they were regulated by the state. (laughs) They claim to be the only B&B in the state of Minnesota that has this thing. It's just like literally in their garage. I mean, I presume they have bed and brewery. Yeah, it's and their beer was really good. It, I I thought it was really good. They have and they make tons of different kinds and so it was just but just an example of different. I mean, and actually I that's why I went there. That's why I stayed. That's why we decided to go is to is because they had a brewery. So um anyway, just interesting entrepreneur thing. I think if that I I that must exist in Wisconsin too. I'm really not sure, but I feel like if, if, be into if it. it doesn't, listen up, Wisconsin Brewers. Yeah. Put it in a garage with your Airbnb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a B&B, a full-on like – Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like a Victorian, you know, the kind of whole Victorian house thing and then like the steel shed garage. I love it. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for digging into this and like 
wrestling with all this policy? Yeah, I hope it was uh, – I hope I conveyed it as articulately and as clearly as possible. So it's, Well, I don't think the laws are helping you out too much. No, it's – it's tricky. So, and even when I talk to attorneys, you know, and I think that's the biggest frustration, right? Like, people when they, and that's the thing, when people want to go start a new business and they're going to sink money into something, they want to know that it's not going to be a waste and they're going to be shut down. And that's what is really frustrating. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Corner Table. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, on Google Play Music, or anywhere else you might find podcasts, and be sure to rate us and leave a review. Also, do check out the other podcasts that I help produce here at The Cap Times. Those include Wedge Issues, all about state politics, and The Mad Splainers, a show that I co-host all about civic affairs and municipal government. Lindsay will be back with a new episode in two weeks' time. Thanks again for listening. Take care.